Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Jui Love. I'm your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we are recording episode 85. Before I introduce my guest, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast, which is called A Gift from Adversity. The subtitle of the book is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying and Homelessness, and it's available on Amazon. After I, I, after I published my book, I got a lot of messages from all over the world, people sharing their adversities, and I decided to bring this conversation up front to discuss not only about the adversities, but the tools that people use to overcome and the gift that came from it. And I'm very proud that we started this conversation at the beginning of this year. And today we have a guest from Denver, Colorado. Hi, and thank you so much for tuning in this morning. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Anne, can you tell our audience your name, where you're coming in from today, and also what you do, your website and social media. Sure, so hi everybody. (laughs) I'm Ann Kaplan, I live in Denver, Colorado, and um, I'm a parent of four kids and I also am a parent coach. And uh, yeah, you can find me online, either on Instagram, Facebook, or just on my website, which is Ann Kaplan Parent Coach. So the website is Ann Kaplan. Ann KaplanParentCoach.com. And it's the same as Instagram or Facebook. Yep. Very easy. So Ann spells A-N-N and the Kaplan is C-A-P-L-A-N. So it's people K- can... It's K-A-P-L-A-N. K-A-P-L-A-N. So people can search. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So Ann... Let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. Mm-hmm. So, What was your adversity that you can share with our audience? Well, I'm sure everyone has many times in their life, so they've experienced adversity, and I'm no exception to that. But I think the adversity that really most fits the modality of your podcast is the experience that I went through with my son, my oldest son, a few years ago when he was struggling with addiction and suicidal ideation. So we went through a really hard time with him when he started first grade or first grade, his first year of high school, freshman year of high school. Um, he really went, took a downward turn and it felt like it came out of the blue. He had always been a really happy, successful, well-balanced, well-behaved kid. And within just a matter of weeks, he had completely changed into this kiddo that I hardly recognized. He was lying and stealing and, um, not doing schoolwork He was using drugs and um, really, really struggling with depression in a very deep and strong way. And uh, that was kind of began this um, year and a half journey of trying to get him some help, figuring out that he really needed to be in treatment and he had to 
at the in the middle of his sophomore year of high school, we wound up um, sending him to wilderness therapy, and then after that, he transitioned into a residential treatment program. So he was away from home for like a whole year and a half in the end um, before he was really healthy and ready to to be in recovery at home. And you said you have many children, four four children. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and so Elijah's journey with um, his road to recovery was also really impactful for all of us, including his younger siblings. So can you explain a little bit um, deeper? This is such an epidemic in our country. And as a journalist, I've covered many stories about this epidemic. and. Mm -hmm the mental health and depression and, you know, um, drugs too. So tell me the first sign that you recognize from um, your son when he was, I guess, freshman in high school? That's right. So he was about 14 when all of this started. Um, well, the good thing and what, what people talk about in, um, in mental health circles as a, a protective factor in Elijah's life is the fact that we have a very open and close relationship. So in the beginning, it wasn't us just discovering that Elijah was depressed. He told us, he came to us and said, I'm having some really dark thoughts. I'm really scared. I'm so unhappy. And, um, you know, we took it very seriously from the very beginning. Um, and I think it's an example of how even when you're, quote unquote, doing everything right as a parent, that doesn't safeguard you necessarily from something like this happening to your family. You know, Elijah's journey with mental illness wasn't because of some failure on his parents' part. It was just his journey that happened to him. And the only thing we can do is help him along the way. So hopefully that experience is as smooth and quickly back to recovery as it can be. Um, but I think that, um, you know, I think a lot of families might have stories of like, Oh, I, I didn't realize my son was struggling or I didn't know that he was using drugs or things like that. But that really wasn't the case in our family. Elijah was very open and transparent with us about how unhappy he was. He was even really open and transparent with us about the fact that he started using drugs. The first time that he smoked pot, he came home and told us about it. And I think he was in his teenage brain and not just teenage brain, but mentally ill teenage brain at the time. He was very surprised that we weren't like supportive of him using drugs. He thought, I think he thought he was going to come home and tell us about it. And we were going to be like, oh, good for you, which is not what happened. But, um, but yeah, we, we could see him kind of descending deeper and deeper into his um, darkness, but also he was communicative about it in the beginning. Once he got further along, it, his ability to communicate and, and show up um, honestly deteriorated. And, um, and then also as soon as he knew that he wasn't going to get you know, that he was going to get some pushback and resistance from his parents around the choices he was making. He, just like many children, decided to start hiding the choices he was making from us. And so, you know, that that communication and trust was broken. But in the beginning, we were really um, well-informed, I would say. 
So you said he started with hot marijuana, but then did he go into other hard drugs? I would say on the spectrum of hard drugs, he didn't get as far down as, as some kids do. He, um, he was, his marijuana was his drug of choice, but in the most extreme ways that you can intake it. Um, but, and he started using Molly and, and things like that, mushrooms, acid. Um, and then, uh, and then I think that's kind of where things stopped. He didn't start, um, going deeper into, you know, um, other drugs that would have been even worse, I suppose. I know that a lot of hard drugs these days have absolute danger of fentanyl That's mixture right. and overdose. And unfortunately, I met some people and news and stuff. It's just horrifying as a parent. And um, so it started that. And then how was your mental health? As a mom, I know you had other children to take mm -hmm. care of and activities and all that on top of what your first son was going through. How how was it like juggling, balancing as a children of four? Yeah, I think that um, there's a lot going on. So like you say, there's lo logistics of having other children that I needed to take care of. I also needed to kind of protect them from Elijah because, um, you know, he wasn't really safe to be around them at different times. Um, so we made some logistical choices, even like um, we moved Elijah actually from in his bedroom up into the way our house is set up. There's a bedroom that's kind of like a nursery attached to our master bedroom, and we moved him in. So, so we had this big 14-year-old boy living in a nursery next to our, our bedroom. But that's what kept him supervised and safe and away from the other kids, even when we couldn't be constantly watching him. And so things like that. But in terms of like my mental health, the real challenge for me was twofold. One was exactly as you say, the experience of being afraid and overwhelmed and exhausted and carrying that load that I think any parent goes through when their child is struggling the way Elijah was. And for me also, like I mentioned in the beginning, I'm a parent coach. And so watching my child struggle, it really um, kind of threw me into an existential crisis with my own sort of inner critic you know, even though I spend all of my time helping my clients embody the the idea that, you know, our children are on their own journey. This is not, you know, it's not because you're a terrible parent that your child has behavioral issues or whatever challenges that we're working on. And it doesn't serve your child for you to believe that because once we do, we are making it all about us and we're not really in service of our kid at all. Even though I spent all this time teaching that, um, once I got into this extreme situation, all of that kind of went out the window for me for a while. And I totally fell back into the same mindset that so many of my clients struggle with and that I have in the past as well before I did my own work, which is, you know, I must be a terrible mother. How have I failed my son? And then as a parent coach, I'm thinking, if I'm such a terrible mother, like what business do I have helping other parents? You know, I must be also a terrible parent coach. 
And, you know, so it, it, it threw me into this identity crisis in, in this sort of all of these different facets of my life, not just as a mom or um, just as a mom to Elijah or just as a mom to my other kids, but also in, in my career. So before this um, episode that Elijah started, um, you were already parent coach. Yes, I was. So I've been doing this work for I think six years now. And before that I worked with um, families, but more around like the birth and pregnancy and early um, infancy chapter of life. So I've been working with parents for 13 years. And so um, I already had that aspect to my practice of helping parents with behavior and their relationship with their children and communication with their children. And of course, now I can look back in retrospect and say all of those skills that I had um, were protective factors for Elijah and for our family. Like I said, he came right to us and told us that he was depressed. He was really open about his drug use. Um, and those are really great signs of how well we had succeeded in using all of these parenting tools that I had taught myself and my clients and everything. But at the time, you know, that mindset was not really accessible to me. I only saw the fact that he was struggling and was sure it was because I had done something wrong. And will you even continue your work while he was going through this like tough time? Yeah. Um, I mean, might be, we might be veering into the overcoming adversity side of things now, but um, wildly and weirdly, my business grew the most it has in any one year during our hardest time with Elijah. And I think the reason why is that my work is really a huge part of my spiritual path and my own growth journey. And a lot of the way that ways that I, um, connect with potential clients and reach people who need my help is by sharing stories from my own life and from my clients' lives and, and really teaching lessons from those experiences. And so I really pushed myself to, uh, to be honest and transparent and vulnerable in my business while we were going through this. And the stories that we were going through and the lessons that I was learning, um, were very salient to so many parents. And so I think my, um, my writing, my teachings, my outreach to my audience was probably the most impactful and, and, um, and heartfelt that it ever has been. And so while I was going through this really hard time, I also was connecting very deeply with a lot of parents who not even necessarily were in the same boat as me because I would really try to make my lessons applicable to any parenting situation. So even though my situation was very extreme, the lessons from it are applicable to any parenting situation, including something very simple like picky eaters or sibling rivalry or tantrums or things like that. The principles are always the same. So it wasn't necessarily that I was attracting clients who were exactly the same as me necessarily, but I I just think that my writing was really touched people in a deep way that made them feel safe and comfortable and heard and seen. Um, and so it was, it was really kind of a wild experience to be going through this hard time and doing so in a relatively public way. And 
also experiencing how um, impactful that can be, not just, you know, for a bit from a business standpoint, but to truly helping people. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And did you struggle yourself in your life that you can share before Elijah's incident that you kind of went through some adversity yourself? Mm -hmm. I certainly don't have the same challenges that, um, that Elijah had in terms of substance abuse, but I definitely have experienced a lot of depression, not consistently through my life, but periodically. And I think that also was something that put me in a really dark place when Elijah was struggling was this belief that like, did, did he inherit this from me? Is it because I had postpartum depression when he was born that he um, is experiencing this now? And then also just having had gone through depression, I, my heart broke for him because I knew how he felt. I knew how it felt to be so depressed and to believe that nothing is ever going to get any better and that, um, uh, you know, this is my new forever and the only way out is to just not be anymore. And I don't think there's anything worse. I would have rather felt that way myself than watch my child feel that way. And the extreme lows that he, his behavior through our family into were, really, really awful. And watching how he was impacting my other kids. And, you know, I think there's just so much of a kind of a dark night of the soul that parents of addicts go through, not knowing how to help them, not knowing if it will ever get any better. And, and um, just feeling totally lost, to be honest. And the truth is, even now, Elijah's doing very well, and he's in recovery. I, there is no guarantee. He's an addict. Like this almost probably, almost certainly will happen again in some way. It's very unlikely that he'll go through his whole life and never relapse. And that's something that you carry with you forever, knowing that, you know, the other shoe can always fall. And it's, you know, it's kind of like a specter that's with you all the time. You know, right now he's a senior in high school. We made it. <laughs> he's going to graduate on time. It's very triumphant and he's going to go off to college. And it's the experience of getting ready for college is slightly tainted, to be honest, because there's this concern about, you know, can he handle living far away from home? And how will I know if he relapses? Um, because it's, uh, I won't be there to actually observe it. So unless he self-reports, he could fall very, very far before I ever find out and step in to try to help him. Whereas if he were at home, I would see very quickly that he had gone off track and be able to intervene much earlier. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of I don't know, darkness that comes along with a relationship with an addict. And I think there's a special kind of experience as a parent of an addict, because in almost every other relationship, the option to say, you know what, I wish you well, but it's not healthy to have you in my life is there a partner, even a parent 
um, we can make those choices. And it's absolutely possible to make that choice with a child, but I think it's way, way, way harder. It's um, to, to sever a relationship with a child is it's um, very extreme and it's a special kind of loss and grief. So um, I think at some times during this journey with Elijah, I felt kind of trapped because the truth is I never, if, if he weren't my son, there's no way I would have ever stayed in a relationship with someone who's treated me the way that Elijah's treated me, who has lied to me and deceived me the way that he has, who has stolen from me, has stolen from my children, who has treated my children the way that he has. The only reason why Elijah and I are together till still today is because he's my son. And there were many times along this journey where I wished he weren't to be honest, which is a terrible thing to admit, because I felt like if I, if he weren't my son, I would have a lot more options, but instead I was quote unquote stuck. Well, what are the dialogues that you and Elijah are having, especially when you, he's struggling with the suicidal thoughts and the depression? Um, like I, it, it's awful. It's just such an awful things to go through as mom. And like, what did he tell you? Like, no, or how did you respond? Mm -hmm. Well, in the very beginning, he was reticent to say fully, like, I have been thinking about killing myself. But instead, he would say things like, I've been having scary thoughts. I've been having dark thoughts. It wasn't until um, he started, we started working with the therapist. And I learned a lot about how to relate to him. Um, and one of the things that I was a little surprised about was how frank of a conversation the therapist was having with him about his suicidal ideation, asking him questions like, have you actually imagined killing yourself? What would you look, use? When would you do it? What does that look like? Um, have you, you know, hurt yourself? And all of these things that, um, I think are so important for us to know. Of course, we need to know that. But as a parent, asking those questions felt really awful, almost part, partly because, of course, you don't want to know what the answers to them are. But then also it felt almost gruesome. Um, so but as we got further into the process, I realized like it, it was really important for me to be much more straightforward and direct in our communications about those things. And the other thing that um, was really important was for me to stay neutral about them so that I was still a safe space for him to tell me those things. You know, if he were, um, you know, afraid of how I was going to react, it would make it a lot harder for him to be open and transparent with me. So there's just so much work that I had to do for myself to be able to do that, to be able to ask those questions and to stay neutral and receive his answers and stay in an empathetic place with him instead of a panicking place or a place of trying to prevent whatever we were talking about from happening. It's, it's, you know, it takes a ton of, um, of your own self work to be able to show up that way. And then also you still do as a parent have to set boundaries. So, 
Um, I don't want to get too far into parental theory here, but you know what we know um, as parenting professionals, and there's very few things that parenting professionals all agree on. So when you find something where everyone says the same thing, you know, it's probably really, really true and really important. And one of those things is authoritative parenting. So we want authoritative parenting means that we both have a high level of connection and closeness with our child but we also have a high level of leadership and control in the relationship with our child, meaning kids need empathy and tenderness and love and compassion. And they also need boundaries and consequences. And that is true even in these very extreme situations that feel horrifyingly terrifying. Like, and I hear this all the time from clients and I fell into this trap myself, which was like, if I say no to him, if I put a boundary on him, if he gets in trouble, what if that pushes him over the edge? I, and so now I become much more lenient as a parent, which is terrible for him. He really needs boundaries. So we'll have these conversations where I'm trying to stay neutral and open and hear what he has to say about how miserable he is and how scary his thoughts are. And then I actually still do need to do something about them. I have to keep him safe. I I have to move him into a room where I can supervise him to make sure that he's not hurting himself. So now he has to live in a baby nursery next to my bedroom, for example. Or at a certain point, we have to set a boundary and say, you know what, it's not safe for you to be at home anymore. You need a level of care that we can't give you at home. And so we have to say goodbye. And that those boundaries and consequences are so much scarier when we're talking about these, these um really uh, risky situations, but just they're, they are scarier, but they're no less important. They're just as important, if even more important than they are when the stakes are low. So those conversations were very, it felt like you were kind of navigating a, you know, a minefield of trying to have that balance between authority and leadership, but also compassion and neutrality. Well, thank you so much for that. So tell me about the facility that he went. So is that like a, uh, somebody recommended that he should go? Yeah. How, mm-hmm. long, how long was the program? Yeah. So Elijah's journey was like, <clears throat> it started out with just regular therapy. Like any parent would probably realize, oh, my child is struggling with suicidal thoughts. Of course, they need therapy. Um, but very quickly, we realized that he needed something more than that. So we, then he, we also got psychological testing done on him so we could get some really strong recommendations about what would actually support him. Um, and then um, we transitioned into having not just therapy on board, but also medications, and of course. And then in addition to medications, we worked with a company that is called a, a care management company. Sometimes they're called transition companies. They're um, basically uh, a group of, of practitioners who work together to facilitate almost your kid's entire life. So not only are they making sure that he's going to therapy and taking his medicines, but they're also doing things to kind of create a container for him, meaning they're connecting and communicating with his teachers at school. They have set up things in the community for him to do. Like, so they got Elijah an internship, for example. They also are making sure that he's going to meetings, like an NA meeting or an AA meeting every week. And and facilitating all of this stuff happening. So basically, Elijah wound up having almost like intensive outpatient treatment with all of these aspects being overseen by this care management company. And when we started working with that company, 
part of that work was to create a home contract, which basically is an agreement between parents and their kids about how the family is going to run. What are the rules and the structure, the, those boundaries and consequences like I was talking about? And one of the things in our home contract was that if Elijah had three, we had, it was called a three strikes policy, meaning if there are three times we found Elijah either had failed a drug test, was intoxicated, or had substances or paraphernalia um, that would count as a strike. And if he got three strikes, that would be a way that we knew that he needed more care than we could give him at home. And so before this ever happened, our family had a communication around like, this is what that would look like. If you've got three strikes, we know what's next, which is some sort of residential care. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened. And so we had a lot of once again, like I said, it's, it's sometimes when you hear the same thing from multiple people and, pe and experts are all agreeing on something, that's a really great sign that you should take it seriously. The facility that we sent Elijah to, which is called Open Sky Wilderness Therapy, was the one and only place that was recommended to us by multiple practitioners like all along for the whole year and a half before Elijah wound up going to wilderness, multiple people had mentioned wilderness for him and had mentioned this particular wilderness therapy for him. And so we knew as, um, before we ever knew that he was going to go to wilderness, that if, if he did get that third strike, that's what was going to happen, that he was going to go to open sky. And um, it was a game changer. It was really, really, really transformative for him. But of course, at the time we found out he had his third strike, we were devastated. And then what do they do? Do you know the program? Like, you know, do they have like school inside or do you have like any exercise or like maybe yeah. sports? So for wilderness therapy, a good wilderness therapy program, first of all, integrates, it uses a family systems approach, meaning they will work with your with the parents. This is about healing the family relationships. It's not just about this kid is broken, let's fix him. Um, there is not school happening or sports or things like that because wilderness therapy is truly living in the wilderness. So you are out in the woods and open sky is based in Durango, Colorado and has, um, and depending on the time of year, they're either in Utah or, or Colorado. Um, and the kids are out in um, undeveloped wilderness, living in tents and um, sleeping on the ground and doing th intensive therapy um, throughout their week. They do a ton of journaling. They do a lot of work. Everything that happens at wilderness that, um, is designed to be therapeutic, even the most simple things like making food or talking to your other people in your cohort, taking a bath, going to the bathroom, every single thing that you do has a therapeutic aspect to it. And it is really designed to be an immersive experience that both pushes kids to their limit and brings up all of their unresolved, unfinished business, and then it helps them figure out what to do with that unfinished business. So even though we didn't see Elijah for the time that he was gone, Every week we were in communication with his therapist and his team. We received letters from him every week. We saw pictures of him every week. And then also there's a ton of work that parents have to do during that time too. So there's um, therapy for the parents. 
and then also education for the parents. And, you know, it was very humbling for me because I, you know, I went in with a big brick on my chip on my shoulder of, you know, I know all this stuff. And to be honest, I did, there was nothing new that was taught to me in terms of parenting skills from open sky, but that doesn't mean that I didn't have a lot to learn. Um, And honestly, I, I had to get over myself to be able to do that. And that was, that was part of my work, you know, for part of the time where Elijah was gone, I just, I had to be struggling with that before I was able to be open and humble to receive whatever lessons I needed to learn. And how long was that program total? Um, Yeah, typically kids go to wilderness um, for around 90 days. So, and then Um, During that time, they'll be evaluated in all these different ways, and you'll have a team of people that help you decide what the next right step is for them when they leave wilderness. How about the school attendance? How is is that during the summer? That's right. So he missed school for three months. Um, and, and when he went away, it was in January. So it was like right in the middle of the school year. Um, but what happens is they do school when they get out over the summer. Um, you know, three months is, is a amount of time that you can make up over the summer. Um, and, uh, a lot of kids when they have gone through this and are out the other side are in non-traditional school settings afterwards that are able to accommodate and help them get back up to speed. And in the worst case scenario, kids graduate a semester later than they would have, which is really no big deal in the grand scheme of things. And and how um, how are the teachers mm-hmm. at school? Or how how are the teachers um, towards his um, recovery and behavior? You mean now that he's out and he's back in school? Is that what you? Well, even during like, yeah. You know, well, wilderness, there are no teachers, so it's all just wilderness guides and therapists. Um, but now he goes to a school that is um, designed to support kids like him. So he's he's not the only one, and he's working with people who are really familiar with his journey, um, and they're just extremely supportive. And we're all really proud of him also because he's – I mean, it's pretty tremendous. He's graduating on time with a 4.0 GPA after all the things that he's been through. It's pretty tremendous. But before you went to the program and then was that like public school that he was going to? Yeah, he just went to our typical, like our neighborhood high school. Mm -hmm. Did you experience any prejudice from teacher or um, stigma from the parents? my my challenges with his school wasn't about prejudice or mistreatment. It was a it was apathy. So I worked um, many times with his guidance counselor. When I went to parent teacher conferences, I was very transparent with the teachers. They all knew that he was struggling, that he was using drugs, that he was lying, that he was um, depressed. I told them all of those things. And also you could see in his grades that he wasn't doing any homework at all. Um, But I think there really was a total lack of support. You know, people would say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And that was about it. So one of the reasons why we pulled him from that school, even before he went to wilderness, was because, you know, it was it's. I think one of the most important things when you have a child struggling is to be really creating kind of like a team of people that are 
all pulling together for your kid. And it really was very clear that there was no hope of, of any sort of team participation from his school from the regular school, you know, we needed a level of communication and engagement and, and oversight that the school was just really not going to give us at all. And so um, it wasn't mistreatment per, at all. Um, and in terms of like how other students treated him, it was just how you would expect when you were in, you know, when any of us were in school, would you want to be friends with someone who was super shady and, <laughs> you know, didn't ever come through or say, do what they said they were going to do, or they lied to you or were totally like out in la la land when you were talking to them? Like, no, I, Elijah, we've lived in this neighborhood since uh, Elijah was in kindergarten and he had friends that he had grown up with since he was five years old. And within weeks of his freshman year starting, he had none of those friends anymore. But I wouldn't say that that's because those friends were, weren't kind to him. It's because he pushed them away, which is a, a very characteristic and, and common with at addiction. And then how about mom friends? You have you had your mom's friend. Yeah, that that's another part of why this was, like I said before, kind of a dark night of the soul. I'm sorry. Um, one of the reasons why is because um, it's so isolating. So I, just like Elijah, had all of these friends since Elijah was in kindergarten. I met met all of his friends' parents, and we were thickest thieves, you know, very, very close the whole time. And then Elijah went away and I watched all of my friends, kids thriving and starting high school and experiencing and enjoying sports and all of this stuff. And I was alone. And um, a lot of those friends, we sort of drifted apart. And some of them I have stayed friends with. And it's not for lack of trying on their part, but it's very hard to understand what it's like to be a parent of a kid like Elijah, unless you're experiencing it yourself. And it was very quickly that um, like we just didn't have anything in common anymore. And the extreme pain and um, darkness that I was in was, well, first of all, it's a real buzzkill. <laughs> you don't want me at your dinner party. <laughs> but then also, um, you know, it, it was um, just something that people couldn't fully understand and I couldn't fully even explain. So um, there, there is a part of, of this as a parent that is extremely isolating and lonely and not just with your friends, but with your family as well. You know, how many of our parents could even possibly wrap their heads around something like wilderness therapy, like I just described, or you know, and then you get a lot of like really unhelpful advice, like, well, you need to just, you know, kick that kid's butt and get whip him into shape. And, you know, it's like, that doesn't really work that way. And that's not good parenting, actually, which I happen to know as a parenting expert. So it was very distancing from my parents, from my husband's parents, my in-laws, from, um, you know, from my siblings as well, you know, it's just, you're just on a totally different journey that people really can't understand. And even now on the other side of it, you know, I was actually talking to my mother-in-law uh, a couple of months ago, and she was talking about how she felt when, when my husband went off to college, how sad she was and how she missed him so much. And, you know, that kind of emptiness feeling. And, and I said something about how I, I didn't think I was, 
would probably feel that way about Elijah because I'm just so happy for him, you know, and this is like a real triumph. And also I've already had to live away from him for a year and a half. We didn't live together. So I know that I can still be close and connected with him while we don't live together and that life goes on and all those things. And, and her comment was, well, this is different because last time you sent Elijah away because he was bad. And, you know, it's those kinds of comments that are so obvious that, you know, you just don't get it. You know, and I, there's no point in me trying to explain it to you for the millionth time. Like, we did not send Elijah away because he was bad. We sent him to wilderness because he was sick and he needed a kind of care that we couldn't give him. Just like if he had cancer, I wouldn't insist on keeping it, him at home and trying to, like, build a radiation machine in my basement. I would send him to the hospital where they had the treatment he needed to get better. And that's exactly what I did with my son when he was... Um, on the brink of death, to be honest. Um, but that's something that people can't understand. And when you kind of get on your soapbox about it, it just winds up alienating people even further. So it's it's a very, very isolating and sad time for a parent. Oh, and thank you so much for sharing that. And I completely understand the layer and multi-verse um, uh, of adversity coming towards you, um, not only for your son, but yourself as a mom and losing friends and then the relationship with adults uh, mm -hmm. because of the adversity that your son was going through. And it, it's, I, I, I feel you, um, it's um, very, very difficult feeling. Mm -hmm. So anyways, let's actually dive into the second question, which you kind of mentioned here and there, but these are the tools that you use to overcome this adversity. Mm -hmm. And before we uh, move on to this question, I just want to let you and audience know this is one of my best part of the podcast. The reason is, like you said, people will say, oh, go do that. Like, you know, people who really didn't go through the adversity, in my case, included like sexual abuse my father. People don't understand, and I don't expect people to understand, but then they would say comment like, you know, just get up and then go, <laughs> just, you know, get a therapist and something. And that's not a solution. It's just a constant struggle. And this is a part where all of my guests so far had shared so many tangible, useful um, methods to go over mm -hmm. uh, and overcome to the other side. So what are the things that you kind of mentioned a little bit that really truly worked? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, well, therapy was a big part for me, for sure. Um, and in, I think sometimes we talk about therapy as this kind of like big black hole of like, go to therapy and then you'll be better. But um, I think sometimes it's useful to talk about exactly what did you do in therapy? Like what methods did you use and things like that? And for me, there, the uh, EMDR was a hugely helpful um, aspect to my therapy. It wasn't the only thing that I did, but it was a very big deal. The other thing that um, I did was a lot of mindfulness work. Um, there's a technique that a lot of people know about all, already called the five senses, where you actually really pay attention to your five senses by, you know, identifying five colors that you can see in the room, 
and four sounds that you can hear and three physical touch sensations that you're feeling in this moment and et cetera, et cetera. So by the time you're done, you're, you've experienced all five senses and you've really gotten out of your head and into your body. And um, <clears throat> that's a very simple, super tangible way to do something that is talked about a lot, which is another therapeutic modality called somatic work. And that is huge. EMDR actually is somatic. Um, anything that has to do with your physical body as part of like healing and therapy is is called somatic. And the reason why somatic work is so helpful and it was very helpful for me is because it gets you out of that analysis and like kind of hamster wheel spinning in your mind and instead gets you to a place where you're just actually processing your emotions, not trying to understand them or analyze them or fix them or solve them or explain them or any of that stuff, which is what we do when we're all up in our heads. Instead, it's just literally processing your emotions. And that's another thing that people say all the time. And it sounds like this big black hole of meaninglessness. What does that even mean to process your emotions? I learned through all of this somatic work, processing your emotions just means feeling the physical sensation of your emotions, meaning like it feel my chest feels tight. I'm crying. I feel this wave of heat passing through my body. Like actually allowing yourself to feel how you feel without needing to do anything about it or make it make sense or any of that stuff. And mindfulness tools are a really, really great access point to getting into that deeper somatic work, but also working with a therapist who specializes in that, or at least knows how to incorporate that into their work is very, very helpful. Um, <clears throat> so I would say from a therapeutic aspect, those were the two most impactful modalities for me was EMDR and then other somatic tools as well. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that was really important was connecting with other um, people who had some shared experience with me. And if you've never gone to an AA meeting or an NA meeting, or if you've, or an Al-Anon or a Naranon meeting, it might be surprising to you. But what you happens in those support groups is absolutely no advice giving, no comment at all on what people share. You can go to this meeting and everyone will take a turn just basically saying whatever they want to say and everybody else just says thank you and that's it and at first that feels really frustrating because it feels like I'm coming here for help and no one's helping me you don't realize um until later how um profound it is to just be heard and accepted and not judged and and know that you're in a room of a sympathetic people who understand what you're going through. And um, gosh, you know, I felt um, it, so uncomfortable with that at first, but those um, support group meetings are very, very um, important. And then I think the last thing I would say that made a big difference for me was, like I said before, getting that chip off my shoulder so that I was actually open to all the support that was around me. You know, I needed to take advantage of the same tools that I was giving to people. And I had a false belief that if I were to do that, like, I shouldn't need this help because I'm the one who gives this help. Like, almost like I'm a doctor, so I shouldn't need to go to the doctor or something like that, which is totally nonsense. And um, once I was able to 
let that go, um, I think things changed much more quickly. But I spent a lot of time in the beginning sort of keeping that help at arm's length and distancing myself from it because I felt like it that was for other people, not me. Thank you so much for sharing these um, tools. And then just to share with you and audience the EMDR, I really thought was great for my trauma as well. And it's eye movement, desensitizing, reprocessing, and how you can find a therapist in my area. Um, maybe it's the same for you too, but you can Google EMDR certified therapist and then you can really ask um, to book a session with that. And then what is somatic work and what is the word somatic? I've heard of psychosomatic, which is the manifestation of fear in your body, but what is it exactly? Well, I think in general, those kinds of extreme emotions and extreme response to stimulus, would we would say that it's it's really because you're you're almost reliving an ex- experience so it's it's um it's like it's happening right now your body doesn't understand that it's in the past and so um why emdr is so helpful is because it actually helps you process that those experiences and put them in the past they become part of your long-term memory it's not that you forget them but your body doesn't respond to them anymore as if they're currently happening to you. And so it's very, very different. It's a a totally different way of looking at it. And it's not uncommon for people to describe almost like a really almost otherworldly experience from EMDR, which is, you know, you kind of start your session and you're really stirred up about whatever it is that you're working on. And at the end, your therapist will ask you, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how intense is this? When you come back and think about this memory again that we started from, how intense does it feel now? And for me, anyway, it has happened multiple times in, a, in an EMDR session where I, I literally say like, you know, I can remember it, but I really just can't make myself care about it anymore. Whereas like just 30 minutes ago, it was the most upsetting and important thing I could possibly think of. Now it's just like, oh yeah, that that happened, but I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> it's, it's very... Uh, it's quite amazing. Did you follow lights? My, my therapist used the vibrator um, from right, left, right, left. My therapist uses uh, little, like, like you said, the vibrating little pad paddles that you hold in your hand, but she also has you wear earbuds at the same time. So at the same time that your left hand is vibrating, your left ear will hear a tone and then vice versa. Mm-hmm. So you're hearing it audio and fit in the physical feeling too. How about light? Did you ever follow lights? No, we never did light. <laughs> so I didn't do the ear pad, but I did do the vibration. Mm-hmm. And my therapist said, think about the worst moment um, in your life and the worst abuse. Mm-hmm. So I know, like when I was getting sexually abused from my dad. And then after that, like you said, it gives you a perspective and it's interesting that what you said about like long-term memory than mm-hmm. happening it right now um just to let our audience know as well as i know my therapist actually had a, a brain model that's cut in half mm-hmm. and 
where the limbic part is, which is most animalistic part of the brain, mm -hmm. where it, the trauma stores. And then during the REM sleep, like rapid eye movement sleep, that we usually cleanse these daily trauma to the cognitive part of it. But then very severe trauma, such as child abuse or any traumatic experience that you have, it's get, it gets stored in the limbic part. And then the goal is to bring that when you are awake and conscious using this stimulation to the cognitive part of the brain so that you can comprehend like what you said, like a long-term memory. And that I see like it, it worked a lot for me. And in law, I know uh, several of my fans who are also a victim of child sex abuse. Um, it worked for them as well. Yes. There's a really great book. I'm sure you've probably mentioned it before to people that the body keeps the score that talks a lot about what happens in our bodies when we experience trauma. And there's a big emphasis on um, the first half of the book is just explaining kind of how trauma works in the body and in the brain. <clears throat> but the second half of the book is talking about like, how can we treat trauma? And it's very um, surprising, I think, to a lot of people what helps with trauma is often not talk therapy. It's these somatic things that incorporate your body, even things like doing yoga and getting massages, swimming, you know, weird things that you wouldn't think that's going to help me get over this extremely horrific thing that happened to me, but it actually does help. And there's so much information out there about how helpful it is, but because our society kind of puts that stuff as lower um, and maybe not quite as legitimate. We don't have a lot of support from, you know, uh, even the mental health world and doing these things that actually could be even more impactful than sitting in a therapist's office for an hour and talking about stuff. You know, that's why EMDR is so impactful is because it combines the amazingness of talk therapy with the physical processing and somatic work that helps Take what you're talking about and actually do something with it instead of it just being spinning, spinning, spinning and talking, talking, talking. I love that. And like what you said, um, typically when you say, okay, my kids having problem, I'm having problem, they say, oh, go get a therapist. And it's not like that. It's just every day. And then I've tried any modality that you can think of in my life so far. And I like acupuncture. And I like sports. I was doing karate for a while, and I I did a Spartan race. Um, so when I was doing the Spartan race, it's it's not like a mud one. It it was at the Fenway Park, like twenty obstacles. And then like there's a certain brain chemical that produces when you are doing this extreme exercise and stuff. And I feel I felt really great. I felt like it's part of the um, body work that you mentioned. It's really impactful for a trauma depression all that stuff and it comes it kind of like gives you overcoming like literally for the spartan race like obstacles but yeah. you know even like running or swimming that like you said then you have this sense of triumph that's right victory over your body and then sometimes the depression and the traumatic event addiction included you sometimes don't know what's going on in your brain. You sometimes get like foggy and don't understand why you're depressed even. But when you do the physical exercise, I, I found myself that it's really helping to kind of 
take a control over your physical body mm -hmm. and able to move the way that you want and take control um, of your daily life. And I thought, like, you know, that, that I, I completely agree with you, Anne. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one reason why wilderness therapy is so powerful for kids who traditional therapy doesn't work is because you are exactly right. Like even the littlest things, like for example, they don't make fire, like they have a fire, obviously they're outside in the wilderness, but they don't use matches or a lighter to start the fire. They have to make a friction fire with a bow drill. And it is extremely hard. It is hard to learn how to do that. It is very frustrating. And so they get this, this experience that brings out all of these negative emotions and they have this opportunity to work through them. And then also once they finally successfully do it, it's, that triumphant feeling of actually having accomplished something and doing it with support from the people around you, but nobody rescuing you, nobody saving you, nobody getting, you know, you know, getting you off the hook or whatever. You have to do it yourself. And those little moments, those little micro experiences that the kids have all day, every day, they they completely transform the way the kids see the world themselves, their abilities, their potential, even their past, because it, um, there's this, this physical lived experience that challenges their, their old stories. When I was running nonprofit, when we were writing a grant that we focus on tangible, measurable outcome, Mm -hmm. We are uh, working with the juvenile offenders in the detention program and through music, um, we were providing the tangible measurable outcome where we produce the music and the kids feel great and then hear, be able to hear. So, you know, small micro moments that you said, I like that word. It's the collectiveness of success and then feeling good about yourself. Mm -hmm. and. I like the way that you said all the emotions bring up frustrations and all that, like when you're trying to make a fire. Mm -hmm. And that is really, um, you don't think that way, but when you put the words and explanation logic together, like that really helped. Yeah. To not, not just the kids, but us as well. And mm -hmm. then one thing I really want to admire you is that like you said, um, you kind of let go of yourself, you know, even if you're a doctor, doesn't mean you cannot go see a doctor. And sometimes when you're an expert, and then you just have to let go and you learn more as well. That's but right. then also, I just want to, we open up the dialogue with you and then with the audience, the mental health and then depression and addiction. These are very difficult talks. And then there's so much stigma, like you said, your friends kind of like, isolated you or your family because they don't understand and we don't have enough conversation around it and as, as a journalist i just covered a parental mental health training from the professions and out of six people that i wanted to interview nobody wanted to talk to me nobody wanted their name on a newspaper except a few so it's a stigma still 2022 and i think um more you know how you can help these individuals, not only just your son, but like your clients or whoever you're around, like friends. We don't have enough tools ourselves to triage these mental health issues. Right. And if had we had more of like your idea um, of different modality that if we had like 30 in our toolbox right here, then I think it's 
much easier for us, our generation、mm-hmm. and our next generation to not suffer long and really be able to jump over the challenge. Like when you have fever, you go to CVS and get Tylenol or ibuprofen and then just treat that. But then when it comes to depression, addiction, mental health, we don't have those educations. So I think this is really wonderful conversation. And thank you so much for that. You're welcome. It's been great to ta- chat with you. I actually have to hop off because I have another meeting starting, but this has been a lovely、yeah. chat. Thank you. Before you go, one word what's the gift that came from your adversity? Oh, one word.、Um... Connection. That's my one word. Connection with my son, connection with myself. Well, thank you so much. And so, so, thank you again for listening to A Gift from Diversity, and see you next time.